Hello. That was a lot of reverb on that one. Hey man, dude, that's how I roll. We we had to do that like four times. Three. Okay. This is number three. Okay. We are the Lanky Guys. This is the Word on the Hill podcast, and I'm Father Peter Muzzin. And I over here, I'm Scott Powell. And today is a beautiful holy day under the Lord. Yeah, that's a good attitude to have, Father Peter. Way to have the good attitude. Well, dude, you it's started good attitude off. day with the lanky guys. Today, I, I had decided to wear like this gigantic cowboy hat to work. Yeah, you sure did. And uh, and then when I got there, Scott immediately took it and put it on, and he no, looked awesome. No, wait a second. You put it on my head. Well, the first you, thing you did, I was standing there having a meeting with Megan. You put the giant cowboy hat on my head. Oh, yeah, that's right. I which was that. just as funny. There's no reason to reframe <laughs> the story. <laughs> Come uh, on. Well, y'all, um, welcome to Ordinary Time. It's welcome to Ordinary Time. This is really ordinary. We're going to talk like this the whole podcast. Do you know there is no such thing as the first Sunday in Ordinary Time? I did know that. Well, yeah. I think we discussed it last year on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, it's the baptism of the Lord. I'm kind of fascinated by... Everything. Yeah, pretty much. That's, <laughs> do you know that that's actually the key to having any sort of conversation, is to just be fascinated by things. If you lose a sense of wonder and awe... You, it it's actually becomes hard to relate to you. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, you you specifically, Scott. Me. Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I do try to maintain a little bit of knowledge about a lot of things so I can have a lot of conversations with people. You actually really Pull are able up. to do that. I try. There's, I do my best. There's no time that I've ever gotten together with you and I'm like, wow, we shouldn't have anything to talk about. Oh. They said that's oh, never right. happened. Oh, right. You've never had. Oh, yeah. Right. I don't know why I got sad about that. I should be happy. Thank you should you. you should be happy because you're 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 a tremendous conversationalist, I oh, must say. You. But I was watching Sherlock Holmes the other day. Okay. And I realized something about Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Tell me more. Sherlock Holmes is the essence of what we all wish we were. Is he? Yeah, I mean, think about this for a second. Imagine having the ability to perceive the things around you with such detail that you could naturally draw their conclusions. Okay. I see. I think that, that Sherlock Holmes is actually the inspiration for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it, though. What do I do about that? Um, read the book. Okay. You don't have to see Sherlock Holmes. There's oh. actually a print form of it. Yeah, I know. Oh, don't you dare talk to me about books. <laughs> Don't you pull your little book card on me. Hey, man, this is what happens. So well, um, so today, we are in the second Sunday of Ordinary Time. It'd be appropriate to have a word from our sponsor. It would. So, Verboom.com. Verboom. Is a... What is Verboom? Verboom. These days. Is Bible and Catholic intellectual tradition okay. study software. So oh, software. We started talking about this a few weeks ago. Yeah, and we were super stoked to be able to announce it, but we finally got all the mechanisms in place yeah. to offer a discount for our lanky guys. Fifteen percent, in fact, fifteen percent. So if you're interested in um, in actually learning and taking seriously in kind of a new level some of the uh, some of the scriptural study that we do here, uh, I would literally I have been looking for a scriptural software. Mm. Forever, and I like I, I had tried some other ones that yeah. that like they left me high and dry, and yeah. they never had like like hyperlinked catechisms or fathers of the church or <laughs> I just know. need a good hyperlinked catechism. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for mocking me. I'm sorry, that just so, me. funny. So uh, we, I really encourage you to go to verbum.com, and if you're interested uh, in purchasing something, put in the um, coupon code Lanky, right? 
Uh, yeah. Lanky is the coupon code, and it will get you 15% off, and it'll help support the podcast coupon in, code in a Lanky. very small way. Yeah, and here's the thing about Veraboom, and then we'll move on to the podcast. Um, Veraboom, I, I, I've actually been really, I'm a kind of person who's actually skeptical of most things before I try them. Very. Um, Veraboom, I mean, it, I, I'm finishing a doctoral dissertation right now. And Veriboom is one of the most helpful things that I've actually discovered in writing my doctoral dissertation and dealing with different translations and different texts all side by side with each other. So what's cool about it is that, you know, anybody from just somebody who just wants to begin studying the Bible a little bit more all like the me. way to somebody who's doing a doctoral dissertation. Yeah. There's actually use for everybody and everybody in between and priests writing their homilies and seminarians studying and and just folks who want to know more about their faith and about the the uh, biblical tradition and just the Catholic tradition in general. I, I've been really, really impressed. And there's a lot of stuff. It's, um, Father Randy yeah. Dollins, uh, the vicar general for the Archdiocese of Denver, he described it this way. He said that uh, having verbum is like... Um, Having uh, being able to click a button and having all the books fly off of your shelves, <laughs> open to the right page, and sit there right in front of you. Yeah, that's kind of true. I mean, it's it's really kind of absurd how how profoundly powerful. Um, and and you can get some serious. <clears throat> I mean, serious levels yep. of of books. I mean, there's some some very basic, actually, really not expensive comparatively to um, being able to build a library. So I just yeah. want to encourage you guys, and we're going to uh, continue to talk about our experiences with Veribum and and encourage you to uh, check it out. Lanky. We do. Uh, so, yeah, Veribum.com. Check it out. Coupon code Lanky, and you'll get some 15, 15% off, which yeah. is awesome. So thank you to Veribum for hooking us up and uh, hooking up our listeners. So, all right, on we go to the second Sunday, because the first doesn't, doesn't exist, as you pointed out, to the second Sunday of Ordinary Time. And this week, our first reading is coming from Isaiah. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not allowed what to say that. What a wonderful reaction that garnered in you. Wow, that wow. couldn't have been any better. Your face was just wonderful. No, it's not Isaiah for the first time ever. Oh, my We're goodness. We're in the yeah. book of First Samuel, yeah, chapter 3, verse 3b, all the way to chapter, uh, uh, and then verse 10 and verse 19 thrown in for good measure. So that's First Samuel, chapter 3, verses 3b. Through 10, and then verse 19. Then our psalm is uh, the Psalm 40. Mm, the um, Psalm 40. The Psalm 40, which uh, the response, mm. the antiphon is mm. um, 8a and 9a combined mm. together. Slammed together. And then our strophes are 2, 4, <laughs> and 7 to 10. Oh, yeah, I guess that's true. You simplified that, didn't you? <laughs> our second reading is coming from... The book of First Corinthians, the first correspondence of Paul to the Corinthians, which is actually not the first correspondence of Paul to the Corinthians, but it's the first named book. So First Corinthians. Weird. More on that later. Chapter six. Do not call me a moron. Oh, very good. Ah. First Corinthians chapter six, verse thirteen C, so the very last part of thirteen, through fifteen A. Fifteen B gets a little bit messy. And then verses seventeen through twenty. Yes, that was does. 17 through 20, even though Father Peter was interrupting. Am I interrupting you? No, you're cool. Oh, hi, cool. You're thanks. awesome. And then our gospel. Mm. So, okay, I had an insight about oh, the gospel. Shouldn't we wait until we yes. talk okay. about the podcast? Yes, okay. So it's John, <laughs> chapter 35 to 42. <laughs> okay. I know. Now, now tell me your insight. Well, okay, so this is obscure, and for some people, they're not going to dig this reference. But, Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> tell me more. But- I realized that the Gospel of John is slightly structured like Pulp Fiction. Okay. 
if you've tell, ever seen, tell if, me more. Do, you know, Pulp Fiction is a lot of people. It's fairly offensive movie. Very, yep, very, that's fair pretty to say. deeply offensive. Yeah. But um, in in my earlier years, I I had a chance. I was exposed to it, and fair it's enough. very nonlinear. It's okay. it's not a linear expression. Yeah, John's not linear. And and, um, and it jumps around to emphasize particular details, and it's actually really nice how it does it. This is not meant to be a critique. On my thing? On your part. But is, is I'm just being totally honest. Talk to me, bro. Is your, is your assessment simply based on the fact that it's nonlinear? Yeah. Okay. Good. But, but I'm just trying to think of other good examples of nonlinear things. I mean, literally, try to talk to me about some nonlinear cinematic experience. A cinematic experience. That's a good. I don't know. I'll have to think on that. I just wanted to clarify. That was a clarification. The only other, the only other nonlinear cinematic expression I can think of is uh, "Waking Life" by Richard Linklater. Is what you just said to me. (laughs) 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 "Waking Life" by Richard Lincoln. 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 Good. I'll check it out. By Richard Lincoln Logs. (laughs) (laughs) He's gonna sue us now, dude. Okay. So first Samuel. Oh. I love First Samuel. I wish I could teach just on First Samuel and Kings. You weeks. can. I can kind of do whatever I want, I guess. But <laughs> I'm your I, boss, and you have the oh freedom man, to do that. But nobody would come because they're like, oh, Samuel. I would. I'd be there with you bells would. on, dude. I, yeah, with, with bell bottoms on. Oh, bells on your bell bottoms. Yes. Now that's meta. Uh, dude, I used my for my gigantic Bells on the bottom of your bell bottoms. That's exactly it. Okay, sorry. What were you about to say? No, that's okay. I, I, no, I jumped. No, no. Well, I just I, talked about bells on bell bottoms. Well, I thought of bells I and I thought of thurible's because the Eastern people have <laughs> bells on their thurible's. But then I j- bought a gigantic thurible at Christmas and I used it for the first time last night. And so that's what I was trying to say. Really, a thurible for all of you who are not um, tapped into the liturgical language <laughs> is a, a giant thing that produces incense. The yeah. giant metal thing that they swing around that incense comes out of. Yeah, some call it a that sensor. a friend of mine got hit in the head with. No. Yeah, a bishop where I lived at one point was just swinging the snot out of it. And it flew off and whacked him in the head. No. Yeah. True. No. I told that story totally wrong. It was the whole, when he it was it was on Easter when he was like flinging the holy water thing. Yeah, yeah. The ball on oh, top of the thing. That's awesome. Flew off like the distance that I am from you. Oh. And nailed that's him like eight feet in the head. It was intense, dude. That's well, he had a big happy Easter. Lump. I accidentally <laughs> happy Easter to you. I accidentally need my dad in the head the other day. Oh. My yeah. goodness! Yeah, yeah, we 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 were uh, I don't know we were Gracious watching me. like a movie or something, and then and every once in a while when we sit next to each other, <laughs> I love this part. <laughs> every once in a while, like he'll reach over and start to mess with me, and I'll just like mess with him back, and then we were entangled in messing with each other, oh, and then dear. I and then I need him in his head, well, and he got what? a big bump. Sounds like he asked for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Dude, Samuel. Okay, we so digress. Samuel. So Samuel, I love the I love the beginning of Samuel. So um. Samuel, what do I say about this? I wish, um, well, we have to talk a little bit about the background because we just have to. Dude, that's what we do here. So the story of First Samuel begins this way. It begin, uh, um, Samuel, the person of Samuel, bridges, if you're thinking about the, the story of salvation history in a linear way, yep. which Pulp Fiction does not do, <laughs> but or nor does John, apparently. But if you're thinking about it linearly, um, we're, Samuel bridges the gap between two major periods in salvation history. So he is literally the bridge between the period of the judges, so, you know, Ruth and Samson and all those guys, and the period of the kings. He is kind of a judge. He's kind of a prophet. But he bridge- So in a similar way, John the Baptist, for example, bridges is the Old Testament into He is the bridge, right? He is yeah. part of the Old Testament, but he bridges into the New. So that's what Samuel is doing in this part of salvation history. He's going to be the one who picks out and then ordains the very first king. 
Um, but this is the story of, of his, his young life. So he has a really neat story. His mother is a woman named Hannah. And Hannah has a really tough lot in life. My wife is actually named after Hannah. Oh. Um, and they, they named her Anne or Annie because they, they didn't like the name Hannah as much. But, but she is na- actually named after Hannah. Oh. Um, which is cool because we have a son named Samuel who we prayed very hard that we would have. So there's, oh, there's a neat a, connection there. The only thing close to that for me is I used to watch Hanna-Barbera <laughs> cartoons, but that's really not in the <laughs> same universe. Pretty much the same thing, I would think. <laughs> I loved Hanna Barbera cartoons. I mean, come on. The Jetsons and the Flintstones are the only two examples I can think of. Yeah, but that's why I love you. Well, well, thank you. <laughs> okay, so Hannah, here's Hannah's deal. She had a rough lot in life. She is married to this guy. Oh, I can't I can't remember his name. She's married to this guy who's um he's just kind of a slime ball. Elkanah is his name. She's married to this guy named Elkanah. Elkanah has two wives. Oh, um he's got this bad news. Yeah, dude. Which it, always remember everybody. Always. That it, it, the scriptures are not going to say this dude was a bad dude. Every, I mean, every once in a while you have something very specific, but for the most part, if you're doing something bad, you're just going to have horrible consequences. Yeah, it's and they're just going to show the consequences. They're not even going to comment on the consequences for the most part. So just remember, this dude has two wives. There's some real consequence in his life, and one of them is like t- really emotionally struggling. But here's the thing that's kind of beautiful: the the struggles are sort of taken on in a certain sense by Hannah herself. She bears the cross, so so to speak, right? Mm. So here's the thing. So this guy Elkanah, he's got these two wives. One of them is, you know, this young hot girl. I don't, I don't know if she's young hot, but she she can bear children, and he uh, he clearly in the text favors her over Hannah, so she can bear kids. She's doing all this stuff, and then there's poor Hannah who is barren. She can't have children. Um, she's got this miserable life. Her husband, you get the sense of, you, you should go back and read through this, you guys. It's, it's awesome. Chapters one through three. It's, it's just a great, it's just a great narrative. But there's this point where, like, she's just heartbroken over the fact that she can't bear children and she's weeping and she's just in utter sorrow and her, her husband, her jerk husband comes up and he's like, well, at least you still got me, baby. And you're just like, oh, you, you slime ball. So she's just got this terrible lot in life. Yeah. They go down, I, I guess it's to Shiloh, to worship at the, the tabernacle where the presence of the Lord is. Mm-hmm. And they're up for, there for one of the feasts. And it's one of the feasts, so there's this big party going on. Hannah is heartbroken as usual, and so she goes into the area around our Lord's presence to pray. Is, she, but isn't there like somebody in there and is like, is like, yes. Like, because she, she's she's praying, and he's like, he's like, hey, drunk woman. It's the priest, the pri- Eli. <laughs> Eli. So not only does she have a lousy husband who's condescending and all this stuff, but now her priest is like, hey, you're drunk, lady, get out of here. <laughs> and she's like, I'm just praying for Pete's sake. But you know, there's a big feast going on, so everybody's drinking, and so he he. And there's actually this beautiful line. I forget exactly what verse it is, but there's this a wonderful, one of the most profound, it's one of my favorite Bible verses. It's this profound verse in Hebrew. It doesn't come across in the English translations, but she actually responds to him and she's like, no, I'm not pouring wine into myself. I'm pouring out myself to God. That's what you're misunderstanding. And it's this, oh man, it's this profound scene. So Eli, we're introduced to this priest named Eli. When we meet him, he's actually in the sitting, he's at the seated position. He's sitting down, which it's it's the subtle little thing in the text, but it's this first road sign that shows that he's actually a lousy priest because the proper posture in the presence of God is to stand. Here's the priest, he's actually sitting down. Here's Hannah, who is standing before the Lord, offering herself, pouring herself out, you know, yeah. who's who's being, you know, um, represented as holy she is so he comes up he's not a very discerning guy apparently he's like oh you're drunk get out of here you crazy woman so he's not he's not he's got a couple marks against him already 
Hannah prays this prayer before God, and she says, If you give me a son, I will give him back to you, and I will put him at your service, and I will offer him back to you. Well, guess what? Her prayer is answered, and she bears this son. And what she does is actually give him back to God, which is profound. So she, um, I forget exactly how old Samuel is. He's um, he's not very old. Let me see. Say something. I mean, <laughs> start, start talking for a second. <laughs> uh, I hate it when you do this to I'm me. I'm sorry. I just need I, I, this is an important point. Yeah. When I think I of Samuel, know. I literally think of your son who oh. is like little. I, I, I mean, <laughs> um, so Eli, we actually should understand that Eli is like as we're looking, what you're talking about is the scriptures are very are making very evident that Eli is he's he's like he's really lost like. Oh, Eli stinks. He stinks. And we're going to, this is actually a bunch of the the cutout verses that we receive in this are are about a prophecy against Eli. Yeah, totally. So, so here's the thing. I I was trying to find his exact age. It's not, it's not stated. Sorry. I wasn't trying to beat around the bush, but, but so she has this child named Samuel. Samuel's age, not Eli's age. Yeah, no, Samuel's age. Now, but, but here's the thing. So she has this child, Samuel. There's a great, oh man, I, I just wish we could talk about this forever. In chapter two, there's this beautiful prayer that Hannah prays in response to God that actually echoes. If you go through it and read it carefully, it is the exact echo of Mary's Magnificat prayer. And it's actually probably where Mary got a lot of the material for her own Magnificat because it's drawing upon Hannah's prayer that she prays. There's all this just beautiful stuff. Hannah is clearly, I think she's one of one of my heroes from the Old Testament. She really is. So she has this child and um, she gives him back to the service of the Lord. And that's how chapter three begins, which is right before what we're getting. And it says, as this, this passage begins, it says, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. The boy Samuel. So we don't know exactly how old he is. Josephus, who is that ancient Jewish historian, he um, opines that that Samuel that Samuel is about twelve years old, perhaps. So you know he's not a baby anymore. He's grown up a little bit, but now he's well, given. Well, that, this is actually would make sense because what what happens is, and I actually just looked this up really quick. Yeah, and, yeah. and some some people say that um that weaning a child because he was weaned but there's two senses of this there's actually the physical the physical weaning from no longer breastfeeding right, right. but there's also a sense of spiritual weaning where they actually have gone from being a child and they would hit puberty and then they would actually be able to uh, understand so like we have the presentation of Christ in the temple there's a certain sense in which that would make that would be it would be right at 12 years old, you yeah, know, like yeah. it wouldn't be abnormal to have a kid and like hanging out and start to actually really engage because he has his reasoned faculties and he's been introduced to the word of God. Now let's go deeper. Yeah, totally. So, but this, here's what here's what's beautiful. He's going to be given over now at at this age, right? Which makes sense. Yep. To service of the Lord, and as we as we begin chapter three, it says he's ministering to the Lord. But he hasn't been given over to the priest yet. He hasn't received any of this training. So if he knows how to minister to the Lord, in other words, how to how to stand before God, how to praise him, where has Samuel learned that? From Hannah. Yeah, he's learned it from his mom. So his mom, although she does, you know, give him back in a certain sense, he learns from her what perhaps is the most important thing to learn, which is how to stand before God, how to stand before him. And there's an interesting kind of juxtaposition in this passage that we get. Hannah teaches Samuel, in a certain sense, the first part of prayer. What's the first part of prayer? It's knowing how to stand before God, to present yourself before him, to praise him. But there's a second part to prayer. What's the second major part to prayer? So one is our giving ourselves to God, 
But to receive the Lord himself. Yeah, to receive or to listen, to hear. And that's what Samuel hasn't quite learned yet. Not not through any fault of his own, but he just hasn't experienced that yet. So here's Samuel. Mm -hmm. We have to breathe out to breathe in. And actually, this is a commentary on actually what's happening with Eli. Oh, yeah. Big time. so, So he's actually standing before the Lord, whereas Eli is... Not. Oh, that's exactly right, though. Again and again, and this is this is not noticed a lot. I mean, if you read or you hear stories about Samuel and Eli and all this stuff, you know, Eli's usually portrayed as this good. Pre- he's not. If you read the story carefully, he stinks. And there, there's this interesting line as it begins. It says, "The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there was not much vision, or there were not many visions." Now you can read that in one of two ways. On one level, on just kind of an historical level, you can say, oh, well, what it's saying there, um, does that, oh, it's not in our passage. It's, this is all right before what we Yeah, do. absolutely. So you can read it on one level and say, okay, not many people have received visions from the Lord. The Lord hasn't spoken much, you know, to the prophets or or like he did to Moses and stuff. You could say that. Yeah, the, the specific word is widespread. Yes, which is, which is fine either which way. Which is general in its term. But I think to really understand what I think the text is really getting at, you have to read the next line. So think about it. The text has just told you that the visions of the Lord were rare. Vision is rare in the land. Now, what's the very next sentence? Uh, And it happened uh, that Eli was lying down at home and his eyes had begun to grow heavy and he could not see. What do you think the text, what do you think maybe is the deeper meaning of its statement that the vision of the visions of the Lord were rare in those days. Is that the priest was lying down on the job. Well, what does it say specifically about the priest? It wasn't just lying down. What does it say about his eyes? Had begun to grow heavy. Yeah, he's be, he's becoming blind. He's losing his own literal vision. And, and I think see. he represents the people who cannot really see the Uc- Lord. Undato blepin. <laughs> blepin, yeah. Yeah. The the vision, blepin. So the people are blind. Why are they blind? Because their priests are blind. They don't see God. Eli's not a very discerning guy. He sees the person pouring herself out to the God, to the one true God, and he thinks she's drunk. You know, all, all these things. He's sitting down on the job. The vision of the Lord is rare because people can't see him. The people mm. need someone like Samuel mm. who has eyes to see. It's not just that, oh, the Lord hasn't appeared in as many ways these days. It's that the vision of the people is failing. It's weak. It's grown dim. They can't see the Lord for Ooh, what he is. Yeah. He's still there. He hasn't changed. It's our vision that's become dull, dull and dim. Ooh, that's cool. This yeah. is really, I like him. I'm, I'm liking what you've been saying. And that's <laughs> our setup. That That's the on-ramp to what we get this week on Sunday. So it Dude, says. Let's, so let's put the pedal to the metal and get metal. on. So all that being said, it says Samuel was sleeping in the temple of the Lord where the ark of the Lord, uh, where the ark of God was. Even that, I mean, you know, Eli is off, you know, wherever he's in his bed. And you have the young boy, Samuel, where, what is he doing? He is literally sleeping in the presence of God. He's probably actually there making sure the oil for the candles doesn't burn out. The the oil of the, um, the, the, the candle, uh, what is it called? The candelabra that's right there. Uh, yeah, you know the, what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the, um, the, 
wick of God. <laughs> yes, yes, the, the wick lamp. of God. Yeah, yeah. yeah the lampstand, the golden lampstand. Thank yeah. you. That's what it is. The golden lampstand. So he's there, and he's you know he's he's got. It's an act of this attentiveness to God. What is what is Samuel doing? He's attentive to God, and he's constantly in the story going to be juxtaposed actually to the sons of Eli, not even Eli himself, but his sons who are sort of you get the idea that they're they're career priests, right? They kind of clock in, they clock out, they do the job, they get their paycheck, and that's kind of what they're doing. Yeah, Eli, uh, Samuel rather is ministering to the Lord. These guys are just kind of coming in and out. Yeah, and he's, so he's sleeping where the Ark of the Covenant is. I yeah, mean, in the presence. This, this, this is the lamp of God, but he's yeah. like, no, I want to be close to the Lord. Yeah, there, there was three sections of the ancient tabernacle, right? There's the outer court, there's the inner court, and then there's the Holy of Holies. Well, there's two spaces in the interior, the, the holy place and then the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, of course, is, is where the Ark of the Covenant actually dwells. So um, in the holy place, there were these three objects. There was a golden lampstand. There was the table of the showbread, right? There was bread, which represents God's presence. And then there was the table of incense. So Samuel is sleeping in that area. He's sleeping yeah. among the lampstand, this fire burning, this bread of presence. I mean, I think of the foreshadowing there. They had bread of to represent presence. God's presence in the tabernacle. And this incense. So he's sleeping here, making sure that the candles and the incense stay lit. And the emphasis is that he's very close to God's presence. He dwells near it. He even sleeps there. It's, it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful scene. Yeah. So then while he's there, someone he hears somebody calling him, right? He thinks it's Eli. And so he runs back to Eli, who's in the other room, and you know he thinks he, he needs another Long Island iced tea or something. He's like, what do you need? What's up, Eli? What's going on? Sorry, that was I stole that from Tom Smith. <laughs> I even made a note of that when I heard him say it in the class. But yeah, the Lord calls him. He says, here am I. He runs to Eli. He's like, well, you called me. And Eli says, no, I didn't call you. He says, go back to sleep. So he went back to sleep. And then again, the Lord called Samuel, who rose and went to Eli. And he said, here I am. You called me. And Eli said, no, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. And then there's this weird line that I actually had to, to deal with this yesterday. It says, at that time, Samuel was not familiar with the Lord, because the Lord had not revealed anything to him as yet. Now, hmm. do you see a problem with that sentence? At that time, Samuel was unfamiliar, was not familiar with the Lord. What's the problem there? Do you know my thing on... Um, no, I don't know. What's, he, he like, or what's Samuel doing? What's he been doing this whole time? Ministering to the Lord. And then it says he's not familiar with the Lord. Do you see the, the problem that's kind of presented there in the text? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I mean, I can. I make, don't think it's a real problem. Well, I, I just want to note the. Well, I can make sense of it. I mean, spiritually, as we're talking, like, um, yes, like I can actually go and I can. I feel like this. This happens actually very typically for Catholics. Mm. We go and we have a sense of the importance and the beauty of the mass. Yeah. But the encounter in knowing God, knowing like that that intimacy with Christ. Mm is something that with that we, you can you and I can note it right I can I can actually tell you the exact time yeah yeah which is where we're gonna get to later by the way totally. but like this thing is, is that encounter like I, I can be doing all these things but it's all preparation for the encounter you can't teach an encounter you can't teach intimacy no right? but you can so but you Hannah can has taught him well yes but you can't teach that uh, that, encounter. Yeah, that encounter that's the only word I can encuentro encuentro so that's what's happening. It's not that. So so just beware, listeners. It's not that Samuel doesn't know God or doesn't understand. You know, it's not that. It's that he hasn't had this deep encounter yet. He has not been propelled into the fourth dimension yet. <laughs> right. This is the dawning of the age. 
<laughs> isn't that the fourth dimension? Isn't that the name of that band? Uh, I don't know. Oh. That's, uh, I just thought it was from the uh, musical Hair. Yeah, I think it is. Anyway, so the Lord uh, had not revealed him. So the Lord called Samuel <laughs> again for a third time. Now, again, what is this saying about Eli so far? That he's attentive, but he doesn't get it. He like, still doesn't get it. He's like three times. No, nobody's calling you. Which did I again and again? I, the worst spiritual director ever. I just think it was really funny. I just I put myself in the position as a as a pastor with a parochial vicar who's like, "Hey, you called me." Yeah, and I'm like, "I didn't call you, dude. Like, I'm <laughs> I'm sleeping." Right. And and go back to bed. Right. And, and like, and he's like, "Hey, you called me," and I'm like, "Dude, I didn't call you." Yeah. I do not know what's going on. Yeah. But go to bed. And then he's like, "I called you," and he's and then you're like. Hmm. Hmm. Like, okay, something else is happening here, which is really cool. Like, it is. E- even the kind of most jamoke of this, e- Eli is just a total jamoke, dude. Jamoke. What is that? Jamoke. What's like, that word? Jamoke is just like a dude, man. It's like a bro. <laughs> it's like <laughs> just saying nothing. <laughs> look, okay. Look up. No, no. Look, I, look up the word jamoke. I don't and want you will to. Learn, I'm afraid and, to. And you'll learn something here. No, but, but you're right. Well, and and one thing to note though, in the Bible, frequently to to Eli's credit. Frequently in the Bible, um, clarity comes in threes. So oh. do you remember, I think it was even last week, we were talking about Peter's vision of the, the pigs in a blanket vision. Remember yeah. when he saw the blanket come down? Uh-huh. It has to happen three times before oh. he actually gets it. So threes are often sort of the mark of clarity, and then people are like, oh. I kicked my tire three times for my conversion on my bicycle, and which ultimately oh. led to my broken arm. That is a rough story. But I cringed even. Yeah, thinking about that story. Yeah, and then also, you know, Dorothy clicked her heels three times and three said there's times. no place like home. You're right. Threes are a big deal. They are. Three is the magic number. But here's where Eli kind of kind of comes into his own in a certain sense. So he goes again. He's like, here I am. You called me. And then Eli, it says, then Eli understood that the Lord was calling the youth. So he said to Samuel, go to sleep. And if he calls, if, if you are called, reply, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And here's where, you know, it takes a little bit, it takes Eli a little bit of time, but eventually he does what a good spiritual director should do, right? This is the role of the spiritual director in the Catholic tradition to help us discern the voice of God in our particular circumstances, right? Yeah. Isn't that what a spiritual director is supposed to do? So this is what Eli is doing, even if imperfectly. And what what's what's sad about it is that, you know, Eli Samuel does go back and he he says, "Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening." And we skip this in the reading; it actually jumps right over it. But what the Lord wants to tell him is, is that Eli is horrible, like, and his sons are terrible, terrible priests. He, he, like, like basically, the whole prophecy is that like oh, it, it's it, rough. It, think about this: the first word that's uttered to Samuel, this really faithful, totally gifted guy is to prophesy against his mentor and his whole and his mentor's whole family and his mentor's whole family to lay him out. Yeah. I'm like I'm like dude Samuel has a really rough occasion. Can you imagine that next morning at breakfast? Eli's like, "Hey, pass the orange juice. By the way, the Lord speak to you again." And he's like he's like and, oh, well, and, and Eli yeah. Eli presses him. He's like, I know. "You you're going to tell me exactly what the Lord said I know. and you're not going to leave anything out." And so Eli's like Okay. You asked for it. Like, yeah, it's rough. He's like, I'm going to lay you out now, sucker. It's rough. Which, there's something, I mean, there's kind of a pastoral application. If we if we are prepared to listen to what the Lord has to say to us, chances are it's going to be messy. Yep. And he's going to ask something of us that's going to be difficult. Now, mm-hmm. Eli could have just, I mean, I keep saying Eli. Samuel could have just ignored this. Yeah. He could have gone back to sleep or said, no, this is in my head. I, you know, I don't know what it was like when he was actually being spoken to. Was there a real boy? You know, what does that look like? But 
he puts himself in the circumstances where he is available to the Lord. I mean, he's sleeping for Pete's sake in the shadow of the presence of God himself. He's put, he's literally physically put himself in God's presence. And now through Eli's, you know, if imperfect direction, he's put himself spiritually in the presence of God saying, okay, speak. Your servant is now listening. I'm present and I'm listening. And when we do that, you know, again, usually it's going to get messy. Yep. So that's what he does. Yep. And and I think there's a relation there to what we learned about John the Baptist in the gospel reading this week, mm. who puts himself in a situation where things get a little bit messy. More on that soon. More on that soon. Different. Let's, it's a different kind of messy. Let's go to the song, man. Because I could song. I could talk about Samuel all the time. I love man, I love this story. Thank Poor you. Poor Samuel. He what? You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Poor Samuel, though, because eventually he will be the one who who picks out Israel's first king and ordains him, despite the fact that he warns the people not to have a king in the first place. And they're like, no, we got to have a king. And then he chooses this guy named Saul, and Saul's terrible. And Samuel feels awful about it later on. He's a good man. I think he's one of the holiest per- people in the Old Testament. Dude, and he had a rough run continuously. Continuously. This is the thing is the first thing that he was asked to do was horrible. Yeah. And then and then it just gets worse. It just gets worse. Poor Samuel. But he's faithful through it, and that's actually what's really important. Yeah, he is. So Psalm 40, I mean, it's not surprising why the church chooses this particular psalm. The the response is, here I am, Lord. I come to do your will. Um, I like to I, I actually like that those are two different verses that are smushed together because in a certain sense it's retelling the story of what Samuel is doing. The here I am Lord is here his literal I am Lord. So here I am, I come to do your will. He's come to do the Lord's will by sleeping literally in the presence. What's the Lord's will? Well, as far as Samuel can tell, it's to keep the candles lit. He you know, there's a certain amount of just there's just stuff we're supposed to do as Christians. And I, I think that there's something kind of beautiful about this in the sense of, oh, how do I say this? I, I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to get all, I don't know, political or socially stuff. But I know you're giving them that look. But, but, but so we want these profound experiences. And those of us who want to go deeper into our faith and want to actually experience the church, we especially younger people have this question of like, what do you want me to do with my life? You know, what yes. do you want me to be a priest? What do you, what can I do? What is God calling me to? What's the big, the yes. big V vocation in my life? I want to do something. And I'm sure Samuel has dreams and aspirations and he's got stuff he wants to do, but he realizes, well, right now what I need to do is just keep the stinking candles lit. Yeah. What am I called to do? It's called to sleep and make sure the incense stays going. That is my vocation right in this moment. And yes. I think it's so important to try to realize, okay, what is our vocation right here and now? I And the reason I was, I was, I was thinking about this morning, cause I, you know, regularly pass this guy, you know, who's, who's on the side of the road and he's got a sign and he wants food or money or whatever. And I always, every day I have this philosophical debate with myself over, well, you know, what is really helpful, what is really helpful. And, you know, da, 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 da. And, and, and we can ask this question of, well, you know, is my heart in the right place? You know, and I want to be charitable, but I want to have the right intention behind this. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's just the guy who probably like a bite to eat. And, you know, we, we can question the, the intentionality of what he's going to do with the money or what he's going to do with this or what is the deeper way that I can help. And, and I don't know about you, but for me, when I start thinking about all the deeper ways that I ought to help and the, the bigger picture scenarios of what I should do to actually help the problem of homelessness and Boulder, things like that, it's just an easy excuse for me to do nothing. 
because I think, well, I've got, you know, we should think about this on a bigger level. And I don't just give the guy a granola bar or something. And so now we, you know, we, we try and the kids, man, God bless the kids because they call me out on this all the time. We just keep boxes of granola bars in the car because they're like, well, he's hungry. We should feed him. And it's not that complicated. I mean, there's just this level of, look, here's a person who's hungry. There's, we could debate all day about the problem of homelessness and the morality of helping the poor and where that fits into social justice. Or you can just give the guy a stinking granola bar and give him something to eat. I mean, we need to do both. We need to have those bigger discussions. Yes. But there's also just a level of, like, what do you need to do right this second? I don't care what your intentionality is. I don't care if your heart's in the right place. This guy needs a meal. Just give him a stinking meal. The candles need to stay lit. Light the candles, for Pete's sake. Keep the yep. incense burning. Totally. And then God will move from there, because when we're faithful in the small things, we'll be faithful in the larger things. Yes. Right? Or God will entrust us to the larger things. And, and, and it's a little microcosm I see in Samuel's life, which I think is really beautiful, because he's doing the mundane. And through the mundane, God leads him into the profound. Yes. Does that make sense? Totes. That, that's my thought here. In the midst of the psalm, which says, I've waited, waited for the Lord. Then he stooped down and he heard my cry. He put a new song into my mouth. Sacrifice and offering you wish not. All these things. I waited and you wanted my obedience. But, you know, 90% of the game is I just needed to show up. Yes. I needed to actually be there in your presence so that I could hear you to begin with. And that's where we miss it. Because we, we focus on the part of I'm waiting for the Lord. You know, I'm doing all these things. I'm waiting. I want to hear. I want the lightning bolt to go off, and I forget the fact that I just have simple jobs to do every day. I just need, you know, there's things I want to do in our ministry. I want this ministry to flourish. I want to convert the entire campus of the University of Colorado. I want them all to become Catholic, all 30,000 of them. But on a certain level, I just need to show up to work every day and do my paperwork. You know what I mean? And do yeah. the stuff that's actually before me. Absolutely. And then I can move on to those things. But we forget that. Or we think in these grandiose ways and we ignore the things that God's actually placed right in front of us. Yep. Anyway, that that's my own soapbox toward myself on this psalm. Good job. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> Here I am, Lord. This is First Corinthians, Lord. So, dude, what are you talking about with saying that the Corinthians, that he's like written before and he said something oh. else before? What are you trying to, are you trying to mess with me? No. No, I, I'm sorry. This is not a super profound point, but I, it seems clear textually that there's at least one other letter to the Corinthians prior to this one because Paul quotes it. So presumably, and here's what we think probably happened. Paul probably wrote a letter to the Corinthians, which we don't have. Which is actually the first letter of the Corinthians. Right, but we don't have it. Um, because in Providence, the Holy Spirit didn't see fit for us to have it perpetually in our Bibles. But which, there, there's which probably is also like the Holy Spirit going like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, I mean, there's I'm tons just of. I'm just kidding. No, you're actually. not. It's true. But there's tons of letters out there. I'm sure Paul wrote lots and lots of letters. They don't all make it into the Bible. But there was probably a letter he wrote to the <laughs> Corinthians. The Corinthians responded to it. And now Paul is responding to that letter. And we know that in part because Paul, at least a number of times, at least a handful of times, quotes the letter that they wrote to him. And he says things like, as you wrote me last time, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, and that's da, 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 actually, da. <laughs> da, 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 da. and actually, and not this one in particular, but there's a lot of, you know, 1 Corinthians, I think, is the, the letter that's used most against Paul. You know, a lot of people don't like Paul. A lot of people see Paul as... You know, My grandmother called him a foot stamper. 
what does that mean? Oh, he's like, the, well, he's always just stamping his foot and yelling and but stuff. But even more than that, people think of him as sexist and misogynistic and, and, you know, anti all sorts of different groups for all sorts of reasons. Part of which is because we misunderstand what Paul's actually doing in his letter. So when Paul says, let's see. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. He's talking about the nature of food in the stomach. Yeah, I, 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 there's so much. Oh, there's so much context. Dude, I, I I look at this and I and and there is a lot of context because it's he's trying to actually say that there is a nature and a fulfillment. I mean, like you, you, I, as we're going along, Saint Paul is so even just taking that food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Yeah. We are that I find myself just in a contemporary way always trying to argue that no. Things have a particular nature, and if you violate those natures, yeah. then there's going to be consequences that are that are not good. So, like, so let's say that you know somebody, you know, our veins are meant for blood, and if you shoot drugs into your veins, there's going to be consequences. That's not good. And you have to actually be very careful about how doctors do it, how we do it, and it's not something that's going to be a permanent reality in which way we're, yeah. we're going to do it. We we actually have to cooperate. We have nutrition, like. I need particular vitamins, and if I don't, I end up looking like me right now. Yeah. Oh no! Come on! Don't look, don't fish for compliments. I look. Like you look Ver- great, Father Peter. I look like You're Veruca, the best looking man I look I've like ever. Veruca Salt, dude. Veruca Salt. Now here's the thing: knowledge of the faith is not the Corinthians' problem. They know the faith. They've learned it inside and out. I'm sure they were pa- taught by Paul because they're smart. They're smart. They're they're smart folks. Their problem isn't knowledge. They're actually using knowledge um, as a sin in a certain sense. Paul will repeatedly in this letter use the word knowledge, wisdom, and um, um, knowledge, wisdom. Well, he I, for some reason I, I have yeah, a sense that he, talk, he, ta- he talks about getting puffed up. He does. He said knowledge puffs up. And love builds up. That's his mantra throughout the letter. So they they're using corn puffs, ah, <laughs> but their problem is their knowledge. So here's what they're doing: these people who are probably very well catechized, they understand the faith. They're using their good catechesis and their knowledge of the faith against the faith. So one of the issues that's going to come up, it's one of the major issues of the book, chapters eight through ten, are all about this issue of meat offered to idols. Have you heard this before? There's this huge issue that's going on in Corinth. You're like, meat offered diet? What does that have to do with anything? Well, this is the thing is the whole restaurant system was a temple system. So, like, if you're going to go eat at uh, Athena's, it's basically you would go and you would worship. They would take the things, they'd cook it, and they'd bring it back to you. And then everybody would rise up for some revelry. Well, yeah, there's that. But but here's the scenario. So you have this situation where, you know, everybody, if you're going out, social life, like you said, is basically at the pagan temples. That's where restaurants are because they offer these animals. And then what do you do with the animals once you offer them? Well, you have to eat them. So they had these big feasts and there was about, you know, a lot of other stuff going on at the feasts too. But so you have this problem. So you have these Corinthians who are thinking to themselves, okay, my whole family, all my friends, they're going out to Athena's temple to go to this huge feast. I know that Athena doesn't exist. She's not really a God. There's only one true God, and his son is Jesus Christ. I believe in him, so I know that Athena's not real. There's no Zeus. There's no, you know, um, any of these people. They're all false gods. Yeah. So if there's meat that's offered to the goddess Athena, who's that meat actually offered to? Nobody. Nobody. It doesn't exist. So what's the moral quality of the meat offered to this god who doesn't exist? Neutral. It's neutral, right? So people are all debating that, well, are we allowed to eat meat? 
Are Christians allowed to eat meat if it's offered to a false god? Is that immoral? What do we do with that? And there's these Christians saying, no, it's fine. It's it's neutral because these gods don't exist. We know better. That's their mantra. We but, know. But then Paul, he starts to step in and say that you, you can't you can't do this because there's people whose consciences are so weak that in the, as they encounter this, it's going to lead them astray in the relationship to the one true God. And what's their response? Their response to that is, wait a second. If we know that these gods aren't real and we really want to eat this meat or we really want to go to this party with our friends and there's people who just don't happen to have as much knowledge as we do if they don't know that that's not a real God, it ain't our problem. It's not our fault that they're not well catechized enough. It's not our problem. It's not our responsibility to deal with all these people who might misinterpret or misunderstand what we're doing. We are free. We know better. We have the knowledge of the faith, so we can do whatever we want to. And Paul says, with that knowledge, you are leading someone who Christ, for whom Christ died into sin. And he says, you are destroying your brothers and sisters in faith through your so-called knowledge because you know better, because you're so puffed up. And if someone who's weaker in the faith sees you, a leader in the faith, going and doing all these things, will they not be tempted to sin? And their problem is, again, not our problem. Paul says, you better believe it's your problem because Christ died for that person. And so Paul goes in this really big statement. He says it later on. It's in chapter 8. But he says, if there's any chance, any potential that me causing me eating meat might in some way lead a brother and sister in Christ into sin, he says, I will never eat meat again. Period. Paul becomes a vegetarian for the rest of his life. Why? Because meat is bad? Because there's an immoral quality to meat offered to idols? Because there's any issue? No. He says, no, I have every right to have meat. But he says, if there's any chance I could scandalize yep. someone and lead them to sin for whom Christ died, yep. I will never touch it. I will never do it again. I'm reminded of some mutual friends that we actually have. So a focus team, when I joined focus way back in the early days of focus, they went down to Troy State University in Alabama. Yep. I don't know if anybody listening from Alabama. Roll Tide. Anyway, no, well. Yeah. No, that's not Troy State. But it's that's Alabama, close. though. Yeah. But anyway, this group of missionaries, and we know it was like Olivia and Father Dave and, and Chris Kittemeyer and some other folks. They were down there. I think they were the first team at Troy. They were the first focus team in the South. And they went down there, and they realized that there's a lot of Christian groups on campus because um, they're deep in the Bible Belt. But there's no Catholic group. It's, it's just them. And we all know as Catholics, there's nothing wrong with having a drink here and there. There's nothing wrong with some good beer or some wine. But they said, you know what? If any of these other groups, if any of these Bible Belt Christians see us drinking— they're not going to listen to a thing we have to say. They're going to write us off immediately. Yep. So they said, even though we know there's nothing wrong with having some drinks, yep. we're not going to touch alcohol. As long as we are missionaries here, we will not touch alcohol because we see these people as valuable enough that we will sacrifice these things that we have a right to for the sake of the gospel. Yep. Um, which is really, I mean, that's really what we're getting at that's, in the second yeah. reading is, is, is this core, which is, it, it speaks of like, and I'm going to attach this a little bit to the first reading. Um, Please do. I just went off on a tangent and, well, as, trying as a, to relate this back. Well, as a priest, I know of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. I know that I can walk by the tabernacle and be okay. And it's, it's good. I've reverenced uh, and so I know that I have to, like, I have to kneel in front of the tabernacle. I have to genuflect, even though I'm free not to. Yeah. I can actually reverence the Lord as when I come in. I can do what I need to. But as I'm going, it's important that people see me know and love the Lord and to actually genuflect and to be present to him in the midst of this. Yeah. Like, it's really, and, and I look at Eli, 
yeah, he was laying down yeah. and his eyes were growing heavy. No, yeah. he was called to stand up. Like, do you not know that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? As I mean, that's that's a you know, what's the uh, what what's the author's name? Uh, temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, good man Paul, is hard to Saint Paul. Good man is hard to find. Um, oh, Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Temple of the Holy Spirit, which uh, leads us into the gospel. Yes, it does. Um, In a roundabout way, which is cool. Now we you always have to remember at the beginning of John, he is doing a new creation. Um, so he's actually talking about the seven days of creation and then relating it back to how Jesus is actually doing this. So we're actually in the third day of creation, yes, which is so cool because in the third day of creation in Genesis, you ha- see that um, the land is formed. So uh, essentially the water and the land is separated and the land is, is formed. And we're here in this, we have Simon, you shall be called Kephas or Peter, you will be rock. So in a certain sense, it's really cool that you have this this encounter with Christ. And I, lo- I love this moment where they're like, John is with his two disciples and John is like, hey, here's the, the Lamb of God. And they're like, wow. And so they start to follow him because they're like, what is he going to do? He turns around and he looks, he's like, what do you want? <laughs> this okay. is a specific day. And, and we know John is a mystic, so he's seeing through all of this. And he's actually really bringing out the point that you're saying is that they've abandoned John the Baptist, but th- th- there's this moment. And then, and, and he says, what do you seek? <laughs> and like, yeah. just imagine Jesus, God turns around and looks you in the eye and says, what do you seek? What do you want? Uh, and you're like, we just uh, want to know where you're staying. <laughs> it's like, I love that. <laughs> Curtis Martin said it. And I just totally got that when we were at seek and it was just oh, funny. It was just super. It was just wonderful. And they were like, uh, teacher, where are you staying? Like, and he said, come and see. And what I love is well, I love the mystery of that because we don't actually know where he was staying. It never actually tells you Dude, where they, he was staying. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer. No, like where was he where staying? Did the, what did they discover? What did they find in there? I don't know, but they got to hang out. Their their love language was quality time. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's... Yes. <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, My love language is words of sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> did you just go there? No, I stole that from Ben Akers. Dude, that's... Fin- ben, thank mm. you for sharing mm. that. Uh, uh, not really. Yeah. Um, so... So it's it's just awesome what happens. And then there's this moment where it, it it's so personal, this moment of encounter. Yeah. It was about the 10th hour. It was about 4 o'clock. Mm. And, and like, which is just so cool because you and I, like what I was saying before, we can point to that moment of encuentro, that mm. moment of encounter. Like when we look at Samuel, you can see him. Here's this very specific moment. He remembers three times getting up in the middle of the night. Until finally he was like, oh, and then the Lord gives him a prophecy and he will never forget that. He will never forget that night when he actually had the encounter with the Lord. And yeah, and 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 that that experience of of encountering bodily and it's it's the making real. And I think that that's part of what comes in when we're looking at at uh, at Corinthians. It's like it's like, do you not know that you're made for encounter and that everything that's coming up to the this moment? If you because there's a lot of people who you're listening right now and you're saying, I haven't encountered the Lord the way you're talking about. Right. Right. I haven't heard this, but this is what you can count on is that is like any good song as the tension builds, it's going to bring it to release. And the, yes. the things that are actually happening in your life are leading you towards this encounter with the one who loves you, who died for you. And and that's where they, then then it's the natural impulse inside to say, I want to share this. Yeah. I want to share this with the people who I love. I want to make this real in the world. And and then and then 
I love it that that it was not it wasn't it's not just the first person who who discover who are made foundation, but it's really a choice. Like God really does choose, and He has specific moments and gestures in the midst of this yeah. and missions. Like I don't want Peter's job; that would no. be horrible. New no. Lord, have mercy on Kephas. Have mercy. Lord, have mercy on Samuel. These are these are intense things, but they all comes out of this encounter from the, this love. So. I don't know. This is, this is just some of my thoughts. I think it yeah. really, I think it comes really together just wonderfully at this four, this tenth hour, this four o'clock of, of of encounter. And I think that that's really where we're being led and why we have the purpose of ordinary time. Why do you think John points out that it was at four o'clock? Because it's just personal. You know what I mean? Like, like you know what? This is testifying. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's a detail that only an eyewitness would remember. Absolutely. If you were fabricating this. If you were just making something up, you would not point out that. But who cares? There was four o'clock. It's a detail that an eyewitness might give. Yes, and that it it just it just points to the. It's really cool. Yeah, it just points to the authenticity of this. That that John is uh, the beauty of that. John is a real guy. He's a real person. He was really there. He was really witnessing all these things. Well, I, I I mean, you can you can imagine someone just telling a story and be like, yeah, I remember. Oh gosh, I was it was, it was like four o'clock or something that day. It was right before sunset, and then this happened and that happened. You know, you can yes. picture only someone who is there recounting a real story that affected them would include a detail like that, which is it's just really beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful insight into the um just the 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 personalness of this. So what's the point? So what's the common thread that runs through all of these? To me. I mean, the most the most basic your, your common thread. Your truth, your truth. The truth for me <laughs> is that everything matters. Yes. Everything matters. It matters that it was 4 o'clock. It mm. matters that John was there. It matters that Samuel mm. was just laying there getting ready to, you know, making sure the candles were lit. It matters that Paul is saying, look, it matters what you eat. Everything matters. It doesn't mean that we should all be these uptight Christians that are always looking over our shoulders, yes. but it means that we should have intentionality with the things that we do. Yes. Because God cares about all of it. He cares that it was four o'clock. God shows from the beginning of time through his providence that this happened at four o'clock in the afternoon. Why? I have no idea, yes. but it mattered to God. Why was Samuel laying right there? I don't know, but it mattered to God. Why? Are you in your car stuck in traffic where you are right now and not home, you know, making dinner or whatever it is? I don't know, but it matters to God and he sees it. And as long as we're faithful in those small things, if you're faithful right where you are right now in the car or in your office, you know, whatever doing you're laundry. doing, not cussing or flipping off the guy next to you in traffic, you know, that you're annoyed with as you're listening to the podcast about the Bible. Don't do that. <laughs> That's what God is asking you to do right now. And if you're faithful to those things, if we're all faithful to those things, then he'll lead us to the bigger things. He'll lead Samuel into being yes. one of the most significant people in all of biblical history yes. because he laid there and made sure the candles were lit. That was his, oh, that that's his resume in a certain sense for being God's chosen to go and anoint the kings. Yes. Is that he was faithful in that matter. Y'all... Thank you for joining us today. You're very cool. Mm. We love you. And um, I hope that uh, the scriptures transform your life and that the encuentro that you long for, the encounter with Christ, is like today or maybe even during the podcast. Like, that would honor me so profoundly if we could actually participate in some small way with 
uh, the encounter uh, of holy souls to God. That's why we do this podcast, so don't fake the funk, keep it real. Look us up on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter, and word to your mama. And if you want help, if you want any other resources, please, again, check out veraboom.com, V-E-R-B-U-M, coupon code Lanky, and they'll they'll hook you up with the deal. So we thank our friends over there at Veraboom. Thanks to all of you, and we will be back next week. Yeah. Farewell. Bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado, www.thomascenter.org. You can also send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. See you next week.